From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us, and I know many of you are are looking for Tony, but I would like to, uh, we've had some questions about where's Tony. Uh, He is on a much-deserved two-week vacation with his family. All is well for Tony. He is not sick. He is not otherwise dis. He is not otherwise detained. He's simply spending some time with his family. And as head of the Family Research Council, we certainly uh, like to give him space to uh, prioritize his priorities. So he will be back uh, soon, but he is uh, presently recharging with his family. So uh, no need for concern. We thank you for your concerns. Reminder for the program today, the website is TonyPerkins.com. You can also download the app for the program, Stand Firm app, wherever you get your apps. I encourage you to do that. Type in Stand Firm and you can stay connected uh, to this program. Every program, you can load it there on demand, as well as all the other Family Research Council materials. Today on the program, we got a great lineup for you. Though it is August, there's a lot happening in Washington, D.C. 16 hours of debate on the Senate floor. It was Votorama. Did anything good happen? Actually, yes. We'll talk about that a little later. The American Academy of Pediatrics refused to allow a group of pediatricians to be exhibitors at their conference. Why? Well, probably because those pediatricians have evidence that suggests gender transition for children may not always be good for them. Are there scientists opposed to science? We'll talk about that a little later in the program as well. And at the end of the program, a Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting is making national news once again. One teacher resigned and hundreds of parents demanded that their school board stop political indoctrination and focus on education. We'll get a report from on the ground in Virginia at the end of the program. But first, to start off today... Taliban fighters have been emboldened by the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan and have been retaking ground from Afghan government forces at a faster rate than expected. Intelligence officials had assessed a fall could come between six and 12 months after withdrawal. Now, estimates are that it could happen within 90 days. Still, President Biden is doubling down on his decision to withdraw American troops. Originally, the date was September 11th, but that's been moved to August 31st because of criticism over his uh, poor choice of an original date. He was asked yesterday about his decision, and he defended the decision to withdraw. In just the last few days, multiple cities in Afghanistan have fallen to the Taliban. There's irrefutable evidence that a vast majority of those Afghan forces cannot hold ground there. Has your current plan to withdraw U.S. troops changed at all? No. Look, we spent over a trillion dollars over 20 years. We trained and equipped with modern equipment over 300,000 Afghan forces. And Afghan leaders have to come together. We lost thousands, lost death and injury, thousands of American personnel. They've got to fight for themselves, fight for their nation. I think they're beginning to realize they've got to come together politically at the top. And uh, but we're going to continue to keep our commitment. But I do not regret my decision. Will anything change the president's mind? With me now to talk about the situation in Afghanistan is retired Brigadier General, now Congressman Don Bacon, who is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. He serves the 2nd Congressional District of Nebraska. Congressman Bacon, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you. You recently compared the withdrawal from Afghanistan to the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011. What similarities do you see and what do you think the result's going to be? Well, I think the president's going to regret this decision. This is a colossal disaster in the making, and President Biden's going to own this disaster uh, for a poor decision. Uh, what The similarity is we had small numbers of troops in Iraq in 2011. We had very small number of troops in Afghanistan prior to the uh, President Biden's decision for us to withdraw. We had 3,000 troops in Afghanistan. 
they were not war fighters. They were logistics people, intelligence people. They did training for the Afghans. We did have air combat capability to help uh, the Afghans in their fight, but it was the Afghans on the ground doing the fighting, not Americans. And we were taking very, very few losses the last two years. So with a small number of troops, we were able to help keep the Afghan government in power. And we went from 70% control of Afghanistan by the government to within just two months, 70% of the ground is now controlled by the Taliban. They just took three provincial capitals over yesterday, and they're murdering our allies in the streets and going after people who wanted democracy and, and more rights. We saw the same thing in 2011 when President Obama withdrew our forces from Iraq, of which there were about 10,000 at the time. They were, not on the, they were not doing the fight. They were in garrison. We quickly saw ISIS come in and take a third of Iraq and a third of Syria. And then we had to come back in to Iraq and retake that territory. And it cost us lots of blood and it cost us lots of treasure. And I fear in just a few months, the Taliban will be in Kabul. They're allied with Al-Qaeda and other terrorists. They'll be striking at America and our allies. And it will cost us more blood and more treasure to uncover or to recover from this blunder of President Biden. So I see a disaster an imminent disaster in the making, and it's terrible. There has been a lot of criticism of this decision, both from the left and the right. Is the Biden administration responding to some kind of benchmark? Has something been accomplished? Is there something measurable that they're pointing to to say, now our time in Afghanistan is over? Or is this purely just fatigue from being in Afghanistan this long? I think it's fatigue. We've been there for 20 years. And I have to admit, there were some terrible decisions made in the past. Uh, there was the decision to do nation building in Afghanistan, which did cost us a lot of blood and treasure, and it was a mistake. Afghanistan wasn't made for America to try to make it to a democracy and, and make the Bill of Rights uh, work there. But the policy we had the last two years was working. A small number of troops, around 3,000 troops, that were not fighting, they were not, kept, they were not pulling the triggers on the ground, they were in the back, in garrison, helping the Afghans do the fight themselves. <laughs> Now, we did have air power, and the air power is very effective against Taliban, but we've withdrawn that air power to uh, countries in the Persian Gulf, which means it takes us hours to get there. We have very little gas over Afghanistan, and our capabilities have been greatly de diminished by withdrawing our air power to neighboring countries, you know, basically Qatar and other countries in the region. Bottom line is the Afghans have lost confidence. They're fleeing. Uh, they've lost roughly 70% of their country now. And as you say, there's new reports out that as early as September, the Taliban could be in control of Kabul. It's a disaster. President Biden owns this, and it's undermining our national security, and it's an embarrassment, humiliating embarrassment for our country. Let me give you another thing that just angers me to the bone. In Bagram, one of these huge air bases that we controlled, that I've been in, we left in the middle of the night and never even told the Afghans that we were leaving. To me, that's it's a cut-and-run strategy, reminiscent of 1975, with folks fleeing out of Vietnam. It's terrible. What are the consequences of this decision going to be for people who live in Afghanistan? Anyone that was allied with us, we have 18,000 interpreters, for example, which we've been able in recent weeks to get out 500, Right. Any of these interpreters that are caught will be murdered. Their families will likely be murdered. Extended families will likely be murdered. That's what the Taliban do, does. Uh, they, wanna, they want to intimidate and scare the population. Anybody that had any connection with the United States government or, to a degree, even the Afghan government and trying to bring democracy and some human dignity to Afghanistan will aptly be murdered. I think also this makes a statement in the region that Americans cannot be counted on. The fact is we only had 3,000 troops, and they were not fighting. We, we were taking very few losses the last two years. So there was not this necessity to run, and our expenses were, were significantly lower because of the small presence. But what are we going to do with the Taliban is in Kabul, and they're allied with al-Qaeda, and they're doing terror strikes in Europe or America, just like they did in 9-11? It's going to cost us much more to fix this uh, terrible mistake. Do you see a path to withdrawal that does not include Taliban taking over Afghanistan or, in your opinion, is remaining in Afghanistan simply the least worst option? I think keeping a small presence 
of folks that were in garrison that were providing logistics support, were providing intelligence support to the Afghans. They were providing training. We were also were doing maintenance on their aircraft, as another example. But these were the folks we weren't fighting on the ground anymore. That stopped about two years ago, maybe three years ago. And, and a lot of Americans don't realize that. We only had about 5% of the forces in the last few years that we had at our peak. And so we found a strategy that I thought was cost-effective, protected the lives of Americans, but it also ensured that our national security interests were being protected uh, in, Af- in, in Afghanistan. I, I can't think of much worse than have the Taliban come back in. They have an alliance, a formal alliance with al-Qaeda, just like they did prior to 9-11. And so, th- so I foresee al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups getting safe haven uh, in Afghanistan, and they will continue to do what they did prior to 9-11, what, what, what led to 9-11. And so I, don't, I can't see why the administration took an effective policy that was working, pulled the plug on it, and to really make vulnerable America to the Taliban al-Qaeda. Uh, and what we thought we'd maybe have maybe two years, we see within a few short months the whole, the whole house of cards collapsing uh, in country. If there really was a cost-effective and, and really kind of combat-free way of just um, keeping the Taliban out of power and having a minimal presence there, do you think the withdrawal here is simply about getting the headline, about giving the Biden administration the opportunity to say, we ended the war in Afghanistan? I think he thought it was politically wise to do this, but I think in the end it's going to backfire, and he's going to own the strategic blunder of the Taliban coming back in in Kabul. That's what it appears right now. And then they have 18,000 interpreters that work for our country, and they, he didn't have a plan for that when he announced their withdrawal. That should have been part of the planning before you make it in a withdrawal announcement. Uh, yeah. I learned as a military guy, hope is not a strategy. And I felt like there's a lot of hope into this, the hope that this would turn out well. The, the, unfortunately, the Afghan government wasn't prepared to stand on their own two feet. Uh, but we found a very cost-effective way to help them do that. We have to remind ourselves, we've been in Korea since 1950. We've been in Europe since 1945 or in Germany. And, and so there's, there's sometimes you, you have to do a co- what's most cost-effective that protects the lives of Americans back home. What we did over the last 20 years, we took the fight to the terrorists, and we kept them out of America since 9-11. And I think we kept revising our strategy. I think we found something that was working And unfortunately, the the new administration pulled the plug on it. Well, Congressman, it's a sobering report, but I know that you're not the only one providing this uh, this report and what's happening in Afghanistan. And uh, we will continue to track this because I I agree with you. And I think the American public feels some kind of responsibility to the people who have helped us there because we went to Afghanistan to protect ourselves because it had become a place that was a threat to not only people in Afghanistan, but all over the world. And no one benefits if it returns uh, to being a, a safe haven for terrorists again. And we appreciate your time and updating this on the story very much. Thank you. And we are going to need to get him back on again because uh, Congressman Bacon is also working on a terrorism memorial on the National Mall, which is going to be important to honor those who have been laboring in this war for so long. Now, coming up, despite some really concerning news where spending is concerned, there is some good news that came out of Votorama yesterday specifically on the life issue. We'll talk about that right after the break. Stay with us. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. 
That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. And this morning, the Senate voted 50 to 49 to adopt a budget framework for the Democrats' three and a half trillion dollar spending plan. The vote came after an amendment marathon known as Votorama, during which Republican senators called for dozens of amendments and votes on various issues. Among the amendments voted upon was one that proposed to prohibit federal funding for critical race theory in schools. And that amendment, proposed by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, was adopted 50 to 49. Also adopted was an amendment proposed by Senator James Langford from Oklahoma to ensure that the budget will comply with the longstanding Hyde Amendment and the Weldon Amendment. Here's what Senator Langford had to say about his amendment prior to the vote. This amendment would add language to prohibit funding for abortions consistent with the longstanding Hyde Amendment, which has been the law of the land since 1976. Hyde Amendment has enjoyed decades of bipartisan support, including from then-Senator Joe Biden, and has been signed into law by Democrat and Republican presidents alike. Hyde Amendment reflects a decades-long consensus that millions of Americans who are profoundly opposed to abortion should not be forced to pay for the taking of human lives of children or incentivize it with their taxpayer dollars. Here with me now to talk about this amendment and other pro-life amendments that voted on during Votorama is Connor Semmelsberger, FRC's Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity. Connor, good to see you. Great to be on with you, Joseph. Well, first of all, I know you were tracking all this closely. Did you get any sleep? Just barely. I'm sure you can see the bags under my eyes today. Well, you are laboring on behalf of us all. We do appreciate it because uh, this is important information. Let's let's talk about what happened. Were there any surprises for you? There were. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, you heard the clip from Senator Lankford. The fact that we were able to lock Joe Manchin in on a vote in support of the Hyde Amendment was an amazing effort and really a surprise. 
We know he's made public comments in support of the Hyde Amendment in the past. But earlier this year, when push came to shove with the COVID reconciliation package, Joe Manchin did ultimately vote for it, and it did not include those Hyde Amendment protections. So where his support uh, laid in the Senate was really uh, a concern. Um, so having this amendment vote actually be added to the budget resolution that will be sent over to the House for Nancy Pelosi to pick up at the end of the month was really surprising in a very good way. And I'll just add one other surprising vote was that vote uh, from Senator Inhofe on uh, protecting babies that have a Down syndrome diagnosis in the womb, protecting them from abortions. Uh, so some really good surprises on the floor last night and in a very positive way. So that Imhoff uh, um, amendment, that was adopted? It was not adopted, but why it was so significant and surprising is it's actually the first time either chamber of Congress has voted on a measure like this, again, which would prohibit uh, abortions based on Down syndrome. We've seen laws like this crop up all over the states um, and have uh, made their way through different courts. And so they're a high-level, high-profile uh, pro-life law that is coming through the country now. But to see it uh, voted on in the U.S. Senate for the first time ever was a big surprise and a great effort by Senator Inhofe. And there are a couple reasons why this is important. And for those who are kind of politically novice in the audience, one of the reasons you do vote Arama is because you try to bring issues to the forefront. And politicians, for better or worse, are always thinking about the next election. And so one of the reasons the Republicans bring these issues up is that they want to force Democrats to become public with where they are. And by forcing them all to say, we want children to be able to be aborted because they have Down syndrome, that's a position the American public may not be comfortable with, and you can be sure that in a certain congressional district, or in this case, uh, Senate races in various states, that issue and that vote is going to come up. So that's one, on one hand, they're thinking about policy, but on another hand, they're also thinking about how is this going to play in the next election, and how can we use this information? And, and Connor, the Hyde Amendment that was adopted, surprisingly, because of, uh, of Senator Manchin, this, of course, eventually would have to make it to the House. We know where Nancy Pelosi is on the Hyde Amendment. We know where the Democrat majority there is. Do you think there's a real chance that a disagreement over the Hyde Amendment could uh, hold this entire $3.5 trillion spending package up? It's definitely possible because this is now the chance for Democrats to decide, is this a political fight they're willing to have? Um, because it really would not just slow down the process, but could jeopardize their entire package from, from passing that $3.5 trillion. And so they could try to strip out that language that was sent over from the Senate, but it would take a lot more time that the Democrats don't really have in order to get all this funding, all this major spending, trillions and trillions done by the end of the year. So it's going to be one to watch, and we'll be weighing in, and I hope you guys are as well, to make sure that your House reps that will have to take this up, as well as your senators, know that, you know, you don't support taxpayer funding for abortion. You just support the, the status quo, the consensus. And so this is going to uh, where push comes to shove. And we'll see where if the moderate Democrats in the House um, are able to push Nancy Pelosi enough to say, we're not comfortable having to vote on things like this. So please, please uh, have us vote on anything else but to fund abortions. Connor, very quickly, we've got about a minute left. What's the timeline that, that the Senate and the House are working on with this package? And where can people go if they want to be heard by their representatives? Yep. So the week of August 23rd, the House will take up this budget resolution that sets the framework up for this major spending package. So the end of the month. But the rest of this will play out over the next several months. September, October, November is when this package will finally get done. So the rest of this fall, please, please weigh in. If you go to frcaction.org, you'll find all our uh, campaigns and action alerts where you can weigh in directly with your House members and senators to let them know about the values that you stand for and that you don't want progressive priorities like abortion funding to pass through the Congress this year. Actually, I did underestimate the clock just a bit. So we have a little bit more time here. So I want to squeeze in one more question. Um, and we have you heard any tremors from the House about the Hyde Amendment uh, adoption in the Senate? Any sense of how they're going to react, how hard they might dig in or not? Yeah, not quite. But what I have been hearing is just how much of a difficult time the Democrats have had in the House to explain to their constituents why they support abortion funding. Again, we have to remind everybody, this, this Hyde Amendment we talk about was passed in 1976 when Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress and the White House. And so the bottom line is this is a policy that Democrats have supported for years. And so they're having a really tough time explaining it to the American public.
Well, they should have a hard time explaining it to the American public because it's difficult to defend. Um, but it also, it, it's important to know that this debate is happening, to know how far the left has moved on this issue, as they don't become more moderate on the issue of abortion. They become far, far more radical. Uh, Connor Semmelsberger, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you staying up, and I hope you uh, get some sleep tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jessa. We are going to continue to track this. This Hyde Amendment issue could be uh, the really the uh, the poison pill in this entire $3.5 trillion spending package. We will see. Coming up, the American Academy of Pediatrics refusing to allow pediatricians to present science. We'll talk about it. Coming up. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAN to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Beck. I'm sitting in for Tony. Last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics rejected one group's application to participate as an exhibitor at its upcoming annual conference, and they gave no explanation for why. But it's clear most that it's likely has to do with the group's plan to share the latest evidence regarding the practice of pediatric gender transition. According to the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, the AAP's stonewalling of their group sends a strong signal that the AAP wants to silence debate on how to best care for gender-diverse kids. Why? Well, joining me now to talk about it is Dr. Michelle Critella. She's the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, not to be confused with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Critella, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised when you heard that the AAP is not going to allow this group to exhibit at their upcoming conference? Not at all. No, not at all. And I think what the audience needs to realize is that when um, when you exhibit at the AAP conference, you're not even presenting. You're, you're not debating. You're, you're not speaking at all. It's merely having a table and making books and papers uh, available, brochures available for people to take if it catches their interest. So uh, this truly does indicate that the AAP is not interested in, um, you know, they don't want to be distracted by any of the facts. Um, and we really knew that based on their 2018 position statement. Their, uh, their 2018 position statement on gender dysphoria in children came out and said that every child should be affirmed and basically put on the, the medicinal track. Um, 
That position statement was fact-checked by a psychologist, Dr. James Cantor. He pulled every single reference cited in the AAP paper. Not one reference supported their position. So they basically, the AAP wrote that position statement, misrepresented the science it claimed to be quoting, and completely ignored all the science to show that a vast majority of children can outgrow their gender confusion, gender dysphoria in the first place. I saw a report also of a survey of AAP members, I think from last year, where 80% indicated that they would like to see more debate and more discussion around this issue of gender transition for minors. Does the leadership of the AAP listen to its members? Are they totally separate? Is this just a small group of AAP members who happen to be in leadership that make these kinds of decisions? That's precisely what happens. So about once a year, there is an AAP resolution forum to which members are invited and resolutions are introduced. A resolution was introduced asking the AAP to review its transgender position statement for children. In light of the most up-to-date science, in light of the fact that Sweden, Finland, and the UK, and other leading countries in Europe are actually pulling back and promoting counseling over these medical interventions now. 80% of the AAP members present at that forum were in favor of the AAP reconsidering and updating its statement, but the leadership nixed it. And in fact, when the AAP comes out with a position statement on any topic, at most that statement was vetted and passed by probably 30 pediatricians. But what you will hear is that the AAP represents 66,000 pediatricians, and this is what they believe. No. No. Do you think that the AAP membership might start to push back on its leadership a little bit? Because among the 66,000, I don't know what percentage of them would agree with the leadership, but certainly the majority, based on that survey, are very open to conversation about learning, because that's what science is, right? It is a conversation. It's a constant debate. It's a constant questioning of conclusions. So do we think that the membership of the AAP might push back and we could see a change in the AAP's position on this issue? It's very difficult. To be honest, the American College of Pediatricians formed in 2002 because for years, a core group of us were pushing back on the pro-life issue. The fact that prior to Roe v. Wade, the AAP acknowledged the fact that our patients began at conception. But following Roe v. Wade, the AAP basically started promoting the right to teenage girls to have abortions, even without their parents' knowledge. It is very difficult because of the structure, sort of this top-down, top-heavy structure. It's difficult. Do you mean to suggest that science is not the most important thing to them? On issues that overlap with sexual morality, no, science would not be their top priority. No. Dr. Michelle Cortella, thank you so much. Yeah, we are at a break. I appreciate your time very much and all you're doing in providing that alternative voice that really most of us do want. Appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Stay with us. Speaking of alternative voices, there's a lot of parents providing alternative voices in Loudoun County, Virginia, at the school board meeting. What kind of response did the school board give them? We'll talk about it when we come back. 
What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marshall Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. And yesterday, the Loudoun County School Board in Virginia heard nearly four and a half hours of public comment on a proposed policy that forces teachers to address students by their chosen name and pronouns and allows students to use facilities that correspond with their gender identity rather than their biological sex. The school board did not include a public viewing area during the public comment portion of its meeting. Instead, allowing only 10 speakers to be admitted in the building at a time and forcing others to stand outside in the middle of a thunderstorm. Ahead of the meeting, a group of Loudoun County residents organized their own meeting so that their voices could be heard. And joining me now to talk about yesterday's meetings and the rally is Victoria Cobb, president of the Family Foundation in Virginia, who participated in both. Victoria, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you. Tell me what happened yesterday from your perspective on the ground. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you've got a school board that's been trying to box out the voice of parents. And so, you know, they had a meeting a month ago, and they kicked parents out of the room, and they declared an unlawful assembly, and then went ahead with their meeting. And so this meeting, they tried to do everything possible to deter public comment from these parents who are deeply concerned over a number of things including transgender guidelines as one of the major items. And so they uh, kind of, we held a big, big rally outside with lots of organizations that have been really stepping up to strengthen the voice of parents. And then when it finally was time after hours and hours to allow public comment, 
They uh, basically allowed people in 10 at a time for two short minutes. And then the rest of it was just standing out in the rain, uh, waiting for your, your moment in the spotlight. It's not how government should be run. Yeah. Well, if democracy dies in darkness, maybe it dies in the rain as well, which perhaps <laughs> is what the, uh, the school board was looking for. Now, there is a, a, a notable thing happened with one teacher there in Loudoun County. And I want to play uh, what she did and then give you a chance to respond to this. Not only that, but within the last year, I was told in one of my so-called equity trainings that white, Christian, able-bodied females currently have the power in our schools, and that, quote, this has to change. Clearly, you've made your point. You no longer value me or many other teachers you've employed in this county. So since my contract outlines the power that you have, over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit. I quit your policies, I quit your trainings, and I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. I will find employment elsewhere. I encourage all parents and staff in this county to flood the private schools. Laura Morris is the teacher in that clip. Now, quitting your job, of course, is a sign of real serious concern. Do you think that she represents parents, other teachers in the community? This is exactly it. In fact, I said that to the crowd that we were with yesterday. I said, look, you are the epicenter. You are representing parents and teachers in the crowd. You are representing teachers all across Virginia. And we know around the nation that are struggling over these things. And so when she spoke, I mean, our hearts broke because we know this is the struggle for so many teachers. In Virginia, we've already had a teacher fired for this, Peter Vlaming, and that's in court as we speak. But today, that, that individual is no longer employed. And so these teachers know what they're walking into, and they're being told by the school district, we don't care, you're going to comply with our agenda, or you're not going to be a part of our system. And so these teachers who have loved and served our communities, who bring value to the lives of our children, are having to make decisions. Do I go forward and return this year, knowing what, it's un what I'm under, or do I actually go ahead and have to resign because I know I'm going to get fired when I'm unwilling to comply? It's, it's, it's a desperate and sad situation, and we're devastated for these teachers. It's a desperate and sad situation, I think, for those who are in the system. But I also think there is, there, there's reason to be optimistic because we can build something that's better. And I think we've seen a lot of families do this. And so I, I think people should see this situation as unfortunate, to be sure, but also as an opportunity because we're Americans, we're Christians, right? We can do things. We can build things. So we don't need to accept the status quo. And so I hope what she's doing, I think it's, it's certain that years down the road, she's going to look at this situation as a blessing even though it's hard right now. And I think a lot of other families can as well. Now, you mentioned the fact that the school board is basically saying, we don't care what you think. This is what we want to do. Have they said that formally or is that just the signal that they're giving? Oh, well, Loudoun County has uh, already officially put on leave one teacher who simply spoke out at the school board meeting. So he said, I oppose the policy you're considering. So it's, it wasn't even implemented. But he said, look, I'm a PE teacher, and I know biology, and I can't teach children that a boy can become a girl. And by the way, I serve God, and I can't violate my faith. And they put him on administrative leave. And in fact, they were so serious that when this teacher actually mounted a legal defense and the court said, uh, actually, you can't fire him for his opinion in a school board meeting. Uh, they actually are appealing that decision. So I think they're sending the message loud and clear. And I do, to your point, this is a moment that I think, um, as believers in particular, we can take as a rallying cry. We can say, look, maybe there is a better way. We, we in Virginia have been pushing for school choice for such a long time. And as our organization meets with churches all around the Commonwealth, we're telling them, whatever you have to connect to education right now, if you are a place where you can have a homeschool pod and you can bring in some volunteers, you got to do that right now. If you're a place that has a Christian school, you need to expand your capacity to reach everyone and lower that price. So we're trying to push people to have options because that's probably where a lot of families are going to have to land. You know, I uh, just actually, within minutes of this program starting, I had gotten an email from a church 
that essentially said, um, we are trying to start a Christian school. Do you have any resources for us? And to me, that just warms my heart that you see people recognizing what's happening culturally and doing something about it. And so I do think that churches need to reclaim the education of their children. It's 16,000 hours between kindergarten and 12th grade that kids spend in an educational system. And when you outsource that, to a system that is very clearly, as demonstrated by the Loudoun County School Board, opposed to the values of, of most Americans, that's going to have an impact. And, and at what point does it become insanity to continue to send your kids there? But that being said, there are other ways to respond to this. These Loudoun County School Board members, they are elected. They are accountable to the people in their community. Is there any sense that the citizens of Loudoun County and maybe other school districts in Virginia are seeing an opportunity that they're going to rise up and take back their school board? Oh, it's fantastic, especially in Loudoun County. They are full on in a recall effort, which doesn't happen around Virginia very often. I know you've got nationwide listeners and, and folks that are watching this that have different processes for this, but it's not a big used common process here, but they are all in. They're basically almost at the requisite signatures for several of the school board members. So they're going to push even ahead of the election schedule to get these people out and get some new options in. So we are seeing activism, not just coming to the meeting, but saying, what else can we do? How else do we change out the body that are the of people who are controlling our children and making decisions that are actually harmful for our children? And then there's also the legal route. I mean, people can't ignore, and we have a legal center here at the Family Foundation, and one of the things that we've done is we immediately filed suit against the Virginia Department of Education for the model policies, and we actually announced at the rally yesterday we will be going after Loudoun County School Board regarding their open government violations, the fact that they attempt to meet outside the parameters of the public. So we need to use everything available in our toolbox. Now, if anybody wants to connect with you, we have viewers and listeners from uh, the state of Virginia. If they want to be part of what you're doing locally on the ground, how can they connect with you? Yeah, easiest way is just to go to our website at familyfoundation.org and you connect either to our grassroots speak up efforts or to our law center. There's a number of ways, but we're uh, we're just finding people are looking for uh, equipping. How can I step up? What can I do? And we're thrilled to and honored to be able to partner with anyone and churches that, that want to be a part of taking back our kids to your point. Victoria Cobb, president of the Family Foundation. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And and. Connect with her again at familyfoundation.org is the website. And now I'd like to bring on Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies at Family Research Council, to get a national perspective on what's happening at the school boards across the country. Meg, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joseph. It's great to be back. It was now, so, so great to hear from Victoria. It is. And I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by her enthusiasm and just their involvement there, you know, uh, America is, 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 we're standing on the shoulders of people who had tea party moments. They were just fed up with the status quo and they decided to do something about it. And I hope and pray that this is another moment, uh, in America, uh, with respect to education and the way our children are brought up. But you know what's happening there in Loudoun County. You've heard the reports. Is it isolated? Is it just Loudoun County? Is there any reason to think this is happening in other parts of the country? It's absolutely happening in other parts of the country, and it's so great. As a, I, I got reengaged in politics as a parent activist, and um, it was so great when organizations like Virginia Family Foundation and Family Research Council would come alongside us as parents and help us in our advocacy. And I know that that's happening all over the country. Uh, if memory serves, you were engaged in the Washington State FPC and helping parents out there fight this years ago when it started in Washington State and on the West Coast and made its way east. Um, and these these things are happening all over the country as well. So it, it's really wonderful that, that uh, parents are standing up and organizations are becoming engaged. There are uh, our school board boot camp, for example, um, is something that we did back in June, and other organizations like Freedom Works and Leadership Institute are starting to do school board boot camps as well, their own versions of school board training for candidates, and that's fantastic because we want as many people as possible to run for school board. Uh, if you don't like what you see on your school board, you don't have to keep it that way. It can absolutely change with your engagement. 
That's right. And I want to direct people to some of the resources you're referring to there. The school board boot camp that Family Research uh, Council conducted, I think it was in June. If you go to frcaction.org slash schools, that's frcaction.org slash schools, you can see all the material from the uh, school board boot camp. So you can learn why you should run for for a school board and how you can run for a school board. Uh, Meg, that's one one step that parents can take. And frankly, community members, you don't even have to be a parent to run for a school board. You just have to care about the education of your children, your grandchildren, or just frankly, your neighbors and everybody else's children. So uh, don't limit yourself if you, can, if you care about this issue. Get involved. But what other steps are you encouraging uh, people to take uh, who are concerned with the direction of government education? Well, absolutely. Anybody should consider running for school board, like you said. You know, school systems have to manage uh, bus fleets. They have to manage buildings. They have to manage a lot of infrastructure. They are often the largest employers in a community, which means a lot of HR functions. And I know that there are people listening to this radio show right now or watching us who are thinking about, well, how could I run for school board? I'm not an education expert. You don't have to be an expert on education. You have common sense and you have a a wonderful heart for children and you have a fresh set of eyes on a lot of for a lot of problems that are facing school boards yeah. and we really need your genius in this moment to help with this problem uh, but there there are other resources that um, are available to to support these efforts if if maybe you're not the person who's called right now to run for school board you certainly could start a parents group Uh, You could start a political action committee and raise money for other people to run for school board. You can knock doors for candidates. You can just simply talk about these issues over coffee and donuts after church on Sunday with your friends and your and your and those in your community and and help them understand what's going on and make them aware of, of the situation. It's it's past time for parents to engage. These are serious problems. We need to get get our get our voices heard. As to the question of qualification for school board, I'd say if you don't struggle telling the difference between men and women, that makes you eminently more qualified than many of America's current school board members. So I would consider yourself qualified and encourage you to jump into the arena. It really does take all of us. And, and, you know, the power is in the people and we are the people. And you don't have to have any special degrees or programs. You just have to care and be willing to do the work. So, um are we seeing, you know, we're, ta- we're talking about Loudoun County. You've mentioned other school districts where things are happening in terms of community concern being expressed. Are we seeing actually any movement yet at the school board level? Are our elected officials hearing the concerns of parents? Are any of these policies being rejected, voted down? What's the response been? Well, it certainly depends on where you are. In Virginia, in the more liberal northern part of the states and the east coast part of the states and around Richmond, some of those school districts are just fine with the model transgender policy that the state has recommended, unfortunately. But in other areas of the state, parents are are making a stand and saying, you know, this does not reflect our values. We feel like this endangers children instead of protecting children. And we are saying no to this model policy. Uh, and, and there have been, um, I think we're up to nine counties now in Virginia who have said, well, we're not going to be adopting the policy. So it'll be interesting to see once they've called the bluff of the interest groups who have pushed this on the, the state through the state government, if those, if those counties um, are going to be the subject of lawsuits. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that... Um, I, I think that these counties have policies in place that address issues of bullying and make every student feel welcome in their schools. And so to to add a transgender policy that actually ends up um, making girls uh, and, and, and boys vulnerable to um, opposite sex encounters in, the, in bathrooms and, and dressing rooms, I think that that, that will be um, something that is ends up being a good thing to reject and a bad thing to embrace in the end. And uh, that's what we're encouraging people to do. Meg Kilgannon, really appreciate your time once again. Thanks, Joseph. And if you have been inspired to run for school board, remember, again, frcaction.org slash 
schools. We hope that you will get involved because it does take all of us and we are the solution to our own problems. So if you've been inspired, continue to be inspired and do what you can because that's what we're trying to encourage you to do every day here on Washington Watch. Do what you can and we'll do it again tomorrow. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 